There are stories in this episode that might be a bit confronting for some listeners. And to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, a warning that we will use the names of deceased persons. Those who were mutilated by the war had lost legs and arms and eyes and, and noses and faces. In the years following World War I, it was normal to see a man like this. Face blown apart and had lost often both arms. He would be crossing the road or shopping with his family or at the pub with his mates. Blind and deaf. And seeing an isolated reminder of the war, well, that was one thing. But seeing a group of these men en masse? Mutilated men shuffling along, thousands of them. That's another story. This is History Lab and I'm Tamsin Peach. Broken bodies and lives lost, we still hear about these things on the news. But the scale of devastation in World War I, that's really hard to imagine. I mean, 17 million lives were lost. And millions more of crippled. And the way the world responded to that loss, that's even harder to imagine. Confidence of men in government has been shaken. It will never be restored until governments devise some way to end war. Because the way they came up with was the League of Nations. The League of Nations to restrain their wild and destructive force. The League of Nations is that way. A revolutionary idea to form the world's first international organisation in Geneva. But this episode isn't about the League itself. It's about the ideas that the League was founded on. Let them see the new world as it is, and the new spirit which inspires it. So imagine that there is this international institution that stands for more than your own state. The spirit of Geneva. The world in which the affairs of nations are to be administered in justice and reason and humanity. A world in which the chief affair of government shall be peace. We still have international institutions today. But the spirit of Geneva? Well, it's hard to even imagine that. So, Clinda, I mean, we go way back, you know, ever since I rocked up at Sydney University in 2013 and there you were, this international history superstar. I'm not going to look at you because I'll laugh. (laughs) It's good. Maybe you should just introduce yourself. Well, I'm an international historian at the University of Sydney and that means that I write about institutions, look at the history of their bureaucracies, at their archives. But in this case, the history of the spirit of Geneva It's more about ideals and a horizon of expectations. And that's why we've got you here, Glenda. Can you help give me a sense of what the spirit of Geneva is about? Well, the sources that seem to capture the real strength of this spirit, the real emotion, they tend to be stories. So do you have a story for me? I have three stories for you, Tamsin, all about Australians who embody the spirit in different ways. So one of them is about a woman who physically went to the League of Nations One is about those who stayed behind in Australia but went to the League in spirit. 
And the final story is about a man who, against all odds, moved through the world, not to go to the league itself, but to reveal the skeletons in its closet. I think first, we should go back to the procession we started with. I forget whose idea it was that these people should be brought to Geneva. All those injured World War I veterans marching through the street. And they were lined up in in military order, in ranks, for them to march through Geneva. And they were in wheelchairs and crutches. This was the opening to an international disarmament conference in 1932, an attempt to stop nations investing in weapons and militaries. We can all imagine just how, how shocking it would have been. And it was meant to shock the world into action. Virtually every organisation in the world signed a petition saying, make this work. Some said, we are not asking you to try. We're demanding that the world be disarmed. This is Frank Morehouse. He spent years in the archives in Geneva, researching the League of Nations and writing a series of very well-known books. With the central character being Edith Campbell-Berry. So Edith Campbell-Berry was extraordinary. There was this place far across the seas called the League of Nations in Geneva. She'd never been to Europe. I'm not sure she had ever left her hometown, but she got on a ship and off she went, like many other women, in search of the spirit of Geneva. And that procession of all the injured World War I veterans, well, Edith was a witness to that. Edith cried and felt that that wasn't professional behaviour. She even feels that the crying's turning her face into a, a rather ugly mess and the muscles of her face are tensing up, almost mimicking some of the injuries of the marches. But she pulls herself together. She has to. She's one of the organisers of the conference. She puts on a picnic for delegates from the various organisations that were there in Geneva. But the picnic doesn't quite go to plan. She gives a little speech that upsets the pacifists. Then people gatecrash the picnic. Including some of the mutilated soldiers from the procession. They're all eating, drinking wine. And the picnic gradually dissolves into a type of chaos in some ways is an allegory. The picnic is somehow an allegory of how difficult it is for the human species to behave itself. As Edith would say... Part of the reason for the League of Nations was to teach the world good manners. And what's really exciting about the story of Edith Campbell-Berry is that she does represent that young Australian, enthusiastic, fresh-faced girl in Geneva on an adventure, an extraordinary adventure. However, I should probably tell you, Townsend, that Edith never existed. I'm the author of a trilogy set at the League of Nations, Grand Days, Dark Palace and Cold Light. Frank's books are historical fiction, Edith is a fictional character. Why Why are you telling me a story about a fictional character to invoke this whole spirit of Geneva thing? I mean, weren't there real women that went? 
Yeah, sure. But for me, it's not just Edith who captures the spirit of Geneva. It's the man who created her. My school friends told me that I was fascinated by the League of Nations when I was in final year of high school in modern history. And I got became cranky because there was only half a page in the textbook about it. And I was amazed at how little attention was paid to it. So when Frank had the opportunity to go to Geneva and immerse himself in the story of the League, he jumped right in. I couldn't wait to get into the archive every morning. So many of the stories that Frank tells, like the march of the injured World War I veterans through Geneva, are based on those sources. It was so fascinating. And while Edith was loosely based on a woman who was, in fact, real... She was a Canadian. Her name was Mary Magici. Her voice, her passion for the League, her spirit, that came from somewhere else. I used my imagination. There are lots of these adventure stories that come from the League, uh, but not all of them leave us with a sense of optimism about what it did and what it stood for, and that's just as important to know. So here's a story in an Australian school magazine for kids from 1932. Something tells me it's fiction again. Yes, but it's also, in historical parlance, a primary source. So one of my research students, Aidan Knapp, found this in the National Archive while he was looking into how the idea of the League of Nations was taken up and supported at home in Australia. Okay. The British Empire and Mandates. The day had dawned at last when Peter and Margaret Trent were to set sail with their father and mother. So at first it reads like a normal story for kids. By the SS Montero for a bal. And then we find out that Peter and Margaret's father is an anthropologist and he's been sent to this Pacific island for work. What busy preparations had been, been going, going on, on for, for weeks past for the voyage and for their long stay in tropical New Guinea? This isn't just a kid's adventure story, is it? No. Why must we go all the way to New Guinea to bother about the natives there? One of the kids asks. Can't Daddy find enough work to do among our own Aborigines without going to New Guinea? And then this is how their mother responds. Well, it is a rather long story, dear, and it goes back to the days of the Great War. So it's the League era, right? Post-World War I we're talking. Exactly. When the war ended, many great statesmen met in the wonderful Palace of Versailles. Which is where the decision to form the League was made. That's right. And one of the problems they're dealing with is what do they do with the territories of the defeated empires, the colonial territories of the defeated empires. And in the past, they would have just shared them out amongst themselves. Some said this is simple. We shall add them to our own lands, as we have always done in the past when we conquered a nation. The spoils to the victor. But there is, in the context of this new idea about the international obligations of the victor states and the creation of a league... It's really not kosher to do that. But that sounds rather foolish, said dogged Peter. They couldn't hand them back to the enemy, and they certainly couldn't leave them to look after themselves. No, replied his mother. They couldn't do either of those things, and they were very worried about the whole matter. Who wrote this story? Well, we're not 100% sure, but the point is that it was a 
narrative that was common to the League of Nations associations that were set up in Australia in this period to support the idea of the League of Nations. So what happens next? General Smuts, one of the great statesmen of the British Empire, suggested a brilliant solution to the problem, that the colonies that had once belonged to Germany and Turkey should be entrusted to the League of Nations. Other states think the mandates idea is perfect. Everyone finally agreed that this was a very good idea. And before the statesmen left the peace conference, they decided that the governing of these native races was to be a sacred trust of civilization. So the League took over these colonies and then just sort of doled them out to other nations? Well, there were conditions attached. Australia was given responsibility for the former German colonies in the Pacific, like New Guinea and Nauru. And so the mandate in respect of Nauru was passed to Australia. I'm Michael Kirby. I was a Justice of the High Court of Australia from 1996 to 2009. We simply looked on it as a a place for us to um, remove the major asset of the island of Nauru, namely the superphosphate bird droppings, which we then sold at a profit to Australia And instead of spending all the money on the people of Nauru, we spent it on ourselves. These days, what we do have a lot about in the news is Manus Island, for example, or Nauru, and the fact that these have become migrant detention centres, refugee centres for so-called illegal refugees. And so we know about these places, but we actually don't know the history of them. So without these international institutions, we really only know half our history. So when we dive into this history, though, what what do we learn? That Australia was, or indeed really is, an empire? You could see it that way, but I think it's more complicated. The idea of the mandates was that there was supposed to be some form of supervision from the international community. But what happened then was slightly different from uh, the intention. There was never any time limit imposed. There was never any real oversight. The League had limited powers of intervention, the only thing they could really come up with, and it was still important, it was regarded as important enough as a kind of a chink in the armour of imperialism, was that in the mandates that the governing states felt that somebody was watching. And that was the League of Nations. Yeah. Well, it is not much fun having an empire these days, said Peter. Too much like hard work. Why, in the days of the Romans, the governors of the colonies extracted as much wealth as they could from their people and did not care one jot for the happiness or prosperity of the natives. What kind of message were these Australian League of Nations Union people trying to send to children? That the League was building a new empire, a new type of empire. The empire of humanity, which is the greatest of all empires. So it all comes back to this spirit of Geneva, this idea that was so powerful, it was taken up at home and taught to children. And yet obviously also problematic, right? I mean, it was still really tied quite closely to the interests of nations who weren't prepared to part with the idea of empire. So that's the point of the spirit of Geneva. It could be many things to many people. So some Australians go to the League of Nations in search of opportunity and political liberty, 
Others stay at home and try to reimagine the spirit of Geneva because they feel it links Australia to the world or to the British Empire, but certainly to a community of nations. For some, the League of Nations justified new forms of imperialism. But we also have to remember, and I think it's as important, it opened up horizons to a new way of thinking about the world. And it's this aspect of the spirit of Geneva that takes us to another story, Tamsin. Another story. And that's the story of A.M. Fernando. Researching Anthony Martin Fernando took me to all kinds of interesting places I hadn't expected to go, uh, whether literally or through archives. This is Fiona Paisley. She's a professor of history at Griffith University in Queensland And her work on Australian internationalism in the Pacific has led us to this fascinating individual, an Indigenous activist in the international system in the interwar. It contradicts assumptions that, for example, Aboriginal people were under the uh, oppressive regime in Australia that limited their capacity for autonomous travel and we would assume travel overseas being impossible in this era. Fiona wanted to bring Fernando's story to life. But at the same time being aware that there were many gaps and and, and absences in the record. The most widely known story of Fernando comes from a third-person account. It's a very, I think, typical, if you like, of the Fernando story, that the most popular example of his protests, the most well-known, the most profoundly impressive, is the one that, in fact, we have very little evidence of. Picture London in the grip of fog and the well-fed, black-coated, bowler-hatted clerks and businessmen with their umbrellas and galoshes slopping along the strap. This is from an article called Fernando, the story of an Aboriginal prophet, printed in the Aboriginal Welfare Bulletin in 1964. Great Scott, what's this? Against the solid stone of Australia House stands a grotesque figure. A black man, hatless and with a grey beard. A mere handful of a man with the fine bones of an Australian Aborigine. I feel it's a bit of a 1960s version of London, so it's all about the kind of white, bowl-hatted crowd. It's got to be a rainy day. He stands in a greatcoat which reaches from his ears to his ankles. And on the coat, pinned from top to bottom, are scores of those little white penny skeletons. Little toy skeletons. That the street vendors sell to children. There's an image of him with long flowing hair and hatless, you know, in the rain, that he's very much a tragic figure. Good Lord, the man is a walking graveyard. Yet his eyes are on fire. He points to those penny skeletons and shouts as people pass... This is all Australia has left of my people. So you became engaged in a political act that at once identified him as an Aboriginal man and connected the image of the skeleton, um, a very kind of, you know, Old Testament view of a murderous world. And he's the kind of the lone speaker of this terrible reality. And here all symbolised in the skeleton. And that when you went to buy one off his tray, he would say to you, This is all Australia has left of my people. 
But there are other ways of imagining this protest. It might have been a beautiful sunny day. This is all Australia has left of my people. Kids would love him. Apparently he would give toys away for free sometimes. <laughs> so there's a kind of fondness, perhaps an empowering moment. It's what keeps him alive, what keeps his spirit, even though it's a terrible subject. But the act of him doing something gives him life. Obviously, this isn't actually Fernando speaking. Uh, my name is Timothy Gray. I'm a Gumbanga Wiradjuri Bidjigal man, born in Maxville, a little town on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, and now reside in Redfern on Gadigal land. Timothy has a show on Koori Radio, and we asked him to come in and help us imagine what Fernando would have sounded like while staging his protests. Can you imagine that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've gone out and done it. So how would you project that? What's the line again? Sorry. <laughs> all Australia has left. Yeah. This is all Australia has left of my people. So that's one account of Fernando. How else do we know about him? Well, Fiona has had to do some real investigative work. In writing this history, it's been important to be as honest as I can about that often ephemeral accrual of a story anchored by um, moments of clear primary source evidence. Moments that start right from his birth. Yes, so he was born in the 1860s. And throughout his life in Australia, Fernando was vocal in his opposition to the violent treatment of First Nations Australians, especially in the missions. So he left Australia in the early 1900s. Possibly driven away by his sense of injustice at what was happening on his homeland. And we can say that he then is in Europe, certainly from the 1910s. And he moves around. So 1920s, he um, works for a lawyer and is a street trader in London. Um, he also travels across Europe as a labourer. So this is around when the League of Nations is getting started. Are you going to tell me that he took his protest there? Well, he considered it, but he decided not to. And in fact, stated that he was never going to bother to try and contact the League of Nations. Since the British were prominent in the League of Nations and Fernando had witnessed firsthand the legacy of the British in Australia, he had a tendency to mistrust anything they had a hand in. He felt it was a British League of Nations. But, of course, he might not have been able to speak at the League even if he had wanted to. I'm not surprised that Fernando was not included in any of the League of Nations uh, events or um, meetings. Irene Watson is a law professor and vice-chancellor of Aboriginal Leadership and Strategy at South Australia University. It's hard to catch her when she's not on the move, so we talked with her in the back of the cab on the way to the airport. I belong to the Tanganakaud, Miantank and Bowendik peoples. Uh, they're the First Nations peoples of the southeast of South Australia. And Irene says the League wasn't exactly welcoming to First Nations people. We know of three fairly senior Aboriginal people in the 20s making application to be heard before the League of Nations and having that application refused. So that's always been a core problematic in terms of having Aboriginal rights 
heard in any international fora is that it's it's a space that only um, is inclusive of member states. So Fernando didn't go to the league, but isn't this a story about the spirit of Geneva? Well, he didn't go to the league, but he did appeal to the league's spirit. So when he arrives in Switzerland, or we should rephrase that, one of the times he was in Switzerland, so the one we know about in 1921 was when he seeks out the headquarters of a well-known pro-international newspaper, Der Bund, came out a couple of times a day, was, you know, very with it and engaged in contemporary world issues. He succeeds in getting an interview with the editors who are very impressed with what he has to say. They're, They're sympathetic and they want to hear more from an Aboriginal person in Australia, so they ask him to write a letter. He writes a letter addressing it to the Swiss people. In the name of humanity... I appeal to you to use all the means available to advance my God-sent mission so that all the thinking men and women can learn through your paper how the Australian Indigenous people is faring under British administration and rule. His letter goes on to say that there is a systematic attempt to eradicate his people. Who escapes is killed by severe work and hunger, poisoned food, snatching of the young and venereal disease. But the letter isn't just an account of suffering. It also makes a proposition to the Swiss people, a really unusual one. And he suggests setting up an international commission to establish a commission of inquiry into Britain's management of the Australian Indigenous people. That would find Britain culpable. There are thousands of men and women of all creeds and nationalities who would step forward to take this risky work into their hands if they only knew about the systematic cruel killing that happens in Australia. So Fernando's connecting with very much contemporary debates and he certainly is obviously reading the newspapers, he's up with, you know, what's being reported there and he's inserting the Aboriginal situation in Australia into those sets of debates. I have championed this issue since 1890 and will not leave it as long as I live. And even after death, should there be a possibility to do something. In the name of humanity, most sincerely, A.M. Fernando. In the name of humanity. Sound familiar? The world in which the affairs of nations are to be administered in justice and reason and humanity. The empire of humanity, which is the greatest of all empires. It's a bunch of words that to me mean unity, like putting everyone on the same playing field in the name of humanity, like, hello, we're all <laughs> on the same level. That's how I see it. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Can you do that one line? Yes. In the name of humanity. So Fernando didn't need to go to the League to embrace the spirit of Geneva and the ideals of internationalism. If you think about it, he, he, he was there in Geneva, I think, in the 1920s. And if, if we understand Australian uh, history, in the 1920s, we were still under the yoke of um, the Aborigines Act. So, you know, the thought of an Aboriginal person travelling overseas independently and also on a political quest, that is quite, quite something. I mean, it's, it's still quite something now. Irene was part of the group 
that drafted the 2007 United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I played a small part in, um, in some of those drafting sessions along with thousands of other Aboriginal people. So she advocates in these international spaces. These are core concerns, um, land rights, economic rights, the right to self-determination of nation-states, and they're critical to the future identity of Aboriginal peoples because simply without the recognition of those rights, Aboriginal peoples across the planet will continue to disappear. And even though Irene's critical of international institutions, she still works with them. But I think we have the privilege of choice to be otherwise. I work both um, critically, critique the uh, structures because they need to be critiqued for many reasons. However, they're also the only forums. You know, something's really been playing at the back of my mind. That procession of World War I veterans who were marching in Geneva that we heard about at the beginning, they were there because they wanted to disarm, right? An international agreement to disarm. Right. But they weren't successful, were they? Well, no, they weren't. And in fact, as history teaches us, the world continued to arm itself, preparing for what would become known as World War II. So the League failed? Well, not necessarily. For a long time, the history we were taught was that because it didn't stop the Second World War, There was no point to it. It made no difference. That isn't true. It made an extraordinary difference, even though people felt it was uh, a terrible disappointment and in some ways didn't want to be associated with the League uh, by the 1930s. They were even more uh, ambitious about the second, you know, the League of Nations Mark II, which is the UN. So uh, one thing in history leads to the other. You know, and Michael Kirby tells this fabulous story. Glenda, you said three stories and this is at least four. I never said I was a mathematician. By a process of computation of the times, I work out that it was in probably February or March 1949. So I was then nine years of age. When Michael Kirby was at primary school, there was a delivery of these pamphlets. They were obviously designed to put in your pocket, uh, but more significantly, they were printed on airmail paper which means international post, a novelty in the era before email. Mr Redman was my teacher and he was uh, trying to emphasise to us, even though we were just young children, how important this document was. And of course the document was... The Universal Declaration of Human Rights. When the League of Nations was invented, the notion of human rights was not on the table. But by the time the Second World War had come to a close, there were all these new ideas in the air about the kind of rights that an international organisation should be able to defend. I suddenly saw that this was a pretty important document and I should pay attention to it. And it drew him into a bigger world thinking about social justice in uh, broader terms than just national terms. So imagine that there is this international institution that stands for more than your own state. A world in which the chief affair of government shall be seen. Yeah, I can imagine it because it already existed here in, in, in this continent prior to 1788 uh, and, and the evidence for that 
is you don't you don't have a country where there are hundreds of different languages, if, if not for the possibility of peaceful coexistence. So it's not just simply one of imagining, but of not forgetting. We still have a lot to find out about the importance of the League. On the one hand, it creates mandates and they lead to these perpetuations of imperial context. On the other, they do create fora where the colonised have a voice, attempt to have a voice, and are able to create networks. And that's what's so interesting about this story. You can't fit it in a box and say it was only about imperialism or it was only about internationalism. It's the complexity and the fact that, like national politics, it has a lot of different sides to it. And that richness to the history of the League is exactly what we're trying to understand. Edith says that the League of Nations was really a school for the world to learn how to run, arrange itself on the planet. But I'm afraid that we're still at school. <laughs> we're still learning how to run the planet. So 100 years after the First World War came to an end, a group of musicians gathered in Sydney to honour the memory of the fallen and injured and in the hope that one day we might learn that lesson and there might be some way to bring an end to war. Last night I had the strangest dream I ever dreamed before. Join in if you know it. I, I dreamed the world had all agreed to put an end to war. I dreamed I saw a mighty room and the room was filled with men. And the paper they were signing said they'd never fight again. And when the papers all were signed and a million copies made, they all joined hands and bowed their heads and grateful prayers were prayed. This is one you can, you can possibly that was Margaret Bradford performing at the 2018 Armistice Day Free Peace Concert in Sydney. This is History Lab and I'm Tamsin Peach. History Lab is made in the studios of 2SER that sit on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and we pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging who have been telling stories here in this place since time immemorial. We loved making this episode so much that there's more to hear, especially from our chat with Frank Morehouse. And I thought, that's incredible. It's as though a fiction writer's fiction suddenly comes alive. You can hear that on Final Draft, 2SER's podcast that's all about books and words. So head to our website, historylab.net, to find a link, or look up Final Draft in your podcast app. Special thanks to Glenda Sluger, our collaborating historian, and to the International Laureate Program at the University of Sydney. Thank you for supporting this episode. This episode was produced by Nina Kopel with the help of Tom Allenson, our executive producer. 
Joe Koning is the one that makes us sound good, and Lauren Carroll Harris and Ellen Lee Beater helped us pull many loose threads together. Special thanks to Emma Kluge and Aidan Knapp, who helped all the non-historians understand what on earth Glenda and I were talking about. To Fiona Paisley, thank you for putting up with our audio quality obsessions. And Anna Carlson, thank you for your time. If you like what we do, hit subscribe and head to iTunes and leave us a review or send us an email. And if you're a historian, perhaps you want to pitch us an episode. And of course, thanks to you for listening. And grateful prayers were prayed. The chords again last night I had the strangest. Last night I had the strangest dream I ever dreamed before. I dreamed the world had all agreed to put an end to war. Oh, could it be so? Thank you.